Welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm Jan. I'm Lane. And we have a special guest. We have Amber uh, with us today mm-hmm. from Redwood Vanna True Tradition. Welcome, Amber. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good to be here. It is. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we have wanted to have you uh, join us uh, for quite a while, and it's great that our schedules were finally able to connect and make it through the technical issues, and we're here we are. Yeah. Well, some of these things are easier in person, it's true. So, so we brought you onto the show today to talk about Vanatru, um, which, as I understand, is your practice and tradition. And uh, so I just want to ask what you know, generally, what is uh, what it is, what it is to you, what that means to you. Well, in its most general sense, Vanishru means a, a pagan, probably reconstructionist or reconstructionist-inspired polytheistic practice that is focused on the Vanir. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a subset of um, Germanic or Scandinavian polytheistic practice. Mm-hmm. And Vanatru is a, is a new term. It's, uh, it's derived from Asatru, which comes out of the Icelandic term for the, the worship of the old gods, basically. Right. But there's more than one pantheon of the, the Scandinavian Germanic gods, um, especially in the Icelandic lore, they're very clear that the Vanir are separate from the Aesir. And some of us feel drawn to the Vanir more tightly than we feel drawn to the Aesir. So we center our practice on the Vanir, and then we may or may not honor uh, most of us, of course, still honor our ancestors and land spirits and all of that. But uh, may or any given individual may or may not also honor the Aesir as the Vanir's allies and, and married in kin, uh, some of the Jotnar, the Alfar, whatever. And the thing is, is that there's a fairly wide variety within Vanatru because it's not a single organized tradition. Right. It's, uh, it's a, a label for an inclination, I suppose you could say. <laughs> um, so. I think, from what I've seen online, that the majority of Vanatru are, are, are um, solitary. Mm-hmm. So uh, each individual is going to be doing whatever they feel called to do because there's no need or, or call for a unified group practice that would make it a single thing. But there is uh, at least two, probably more, distinct branches of, of tradition developing in different directions. Um, where, you know, either there's an in-person group like the Vanek Conspiracy, which is the group I run, or there's uh, a collection of online people interacting with each other, developing uh, joint practices and, and, and shared gnosis and, and insights that go beyond what any of us can really extract from the lore or archaeology or anything. So, Vanatru, the only common denominator in Vanatru in terms of, if you say you're Vanatru, I assume this of you is that your practice is centered on the Vanir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beyond that, there's quite a variety. You could identify as heathen, you could not identify as heathen. Really? You could include other pantheons in your practice, you could not ident- include other pantheons in your practice. I've seen Vanatruar who vehemently reject the label of heathen because they do not like what the more mainstream of heathenry represents. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may or may not identify instead as northern uh Northern tradition pagan, or they right. just identify as Vanatru and consider that a standalone statement. I'm, you know, to each their own. I, I consider myself heathen, but I'm from California Bay Area, where heathenry is pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. And um, to the degree that my understanding of what heathenry represents is at one end of a sort of spectrum of politics, 
I would rather hold on to the label and continue to include it in heathenry and say, no, damn it, you don't get to take that away from me. Yes. Right. But, um, you know, everybody has to make their own choice about what these things mean to them. So I'm not going to bash anyone who does or does not choose to consider some, consider themselves a form of vanity that's heathen. Is that a mud enough for you? <laughs> actually, that was quite clear, I think. It was, and, actually, and, yeah. And very well spoken. Thank you. Vanic-centered practice and may or may not necessarily consider themselves heathen. How does that work if you don't consider yourself heathen, but you're still engaging in heathen practice like that? Or a practice that most people... I'm the wrong person to ask that. Fair enough. Okay. I consider myself both. But um, I think what it amounts to is that um, it depends on whether you perceive heathenry as a category of practice, a category of belief, or a social category. Ah. And I tend to regard it as a category of practice, which is why I include myself in the label. But a lot of people consider it also to be, also or instead to be a category of like politics. Okay. They include like folkism, and and by folkism they don't mean practicing old folk traditions. They mean using the label of folkism to try and hand wave racism, which is yeah. not cool. Yeah, so, absolutely uh, not cool. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are avoiding the heathen label because they got on quite well with Loki. Thank you very damn much. And don't want to deal with uh, quite a number of heathens who are very at least uncomfortable with Loki, if not uh, outright hateful about it. Uh-huh. And then there's the uh, you know queer politics and and gender politics, and there's just there's whole piles of things that pe- people within heathenry disagree on Absolutely. in quite a range. And the same way that you get like Christians rejecting the idea that they are some particular denomination of Christian because all of the denominations they know about seem like they require things they don't agree with mm-hmm. so they'll be like I, I don't i'm not religious i'm just christian yeah yeah i see that in paganism as well mm-hmm. i see i see a lot of you know i claim this label but not that label because the what the labels mean to me are different than what they might have meant to the person i'm talking to right so, ultimately i kind of feel like adjectives aren't very useful if they're not consistent in what they describe but True. language is defined by use so you kind of have to suck that one out <laughs> Yeah, we don't have a dictionary. We haven't had a heathen Nicene council to decide what's uh, what is and isn't and fits within the bounds. So and, well, and as useful as the Nicene council was to them, that was useful to them because of the power base it created, not necessarily because of the theology it generated. That's true. Right. I'm kind of okay with not having one. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, what differentiates your tradition? Uh, Redwood Benetru. Yeah. Well, I called it that mostly just to acknowledge that. I don't expect that anyone else who calls themselves Vanatru is necessarily going to share my expectations of practice. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to describe what distinguishes Redwood Vanatru because it's the only form I've ever practiced. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's like, I don't know, but I know it's not what other people are doing and I want to respect that. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly I would have to say Redwood Vanatru has been grounded in group practice thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a certain degree that means that we're grounded in a... Um, least specific common denominator, I wouldn't say lowest, um, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of, we do not assert whether or not a thing is true, we assert that we accept it, that it is within range, and if you believe it, go with it, as long as you're not an asshole. Yeah. Um, so most of our practice is built up around form, rather than belief, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. We have some specific ritual forms. We have, uh, I'm, I've been trying to actually write down our liturgi- liturgical calendar. Up until this point, there's 
Redwood Venetru is basically whatever the Venet Conspiracy has been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I gave it a separate name from the Venet Conspiracy was partially that it, it, I wanted the Venet Conspiracy to be able to hold on to its name as a local entity and still have the tradition expand. Right. But also because there's a certain degree to which Redwood Venetru is going to, going forward, include things that stretch beyond what the Venet Conspiracy happens to be practicing. Because it needs to grow and expand to be accessible to people who are more solitary, for example, or people whose uh, congregations are, uh, congregation kindred, whatever you want to call it, are meeting online instead of, you know, in person. I, I think it's very important to have your practice be on some level grounded in your location, mm-hmm. yeah. but I see no reason why that means that everybody has to be in the same location. And I, my hope in the long run is that if I can extract enough of the information that God has given me from my brain and compare it to what the gods give other people in their brains and and pull something cohesive enough together that we can actually successfully explain so that others can choose to practice it that as other groups form in other places and and adjust things to what their local area needs because the weather's different or the people are different or whatever right that sub branches of redwood vantage will be renamed for a local indigenous species so we call it redwood because redwood is here but if you're going to practice in the Southwest, you might want to rename it for, you know, some desert animal or something. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, rename it, rename your branch once you make it your own for something that signifies it's grounded where you are. Um, and that's sort of my long, long-term goal for it. But right now I'm still just trying to uh, get everything we already do written down and organized in a coherent fashion so that we can pass it on to people who aren't in person with us and are interested. Excellent. And for me, that's the hard part because like, I have so much swimming in my head. Um, we've been doing this for so long and I've been a dream worker for even longer and half of the information that God's given me is only semi-coherent when it arrives anyway and then there's whatever research and what people do and it's kind of an information mess mm-hmm. that uh, the work of serving the gods is... is not the hard part. The work of organizing the information is the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amber, one of the things, going to take it back a little bit to something that you mentioned. I really like the adaptability that is, for lack of a better term, built into the tradition where yeah. when, if someone practices it in their loca- the, their locale, it's based and centered around their land spirits and whites and their ancestors and their, as you said, their weather, their climate and the things that are going on there. And I think that's really awesome. So like you said, if someone forms a group in the Southwest, uh, maybe it's the Ocotillo conspiracy or the Ocotillo tradition or something for, for that. So that's really great. And I think that's really important for folks to understand that uh, it's not about this is the way you have to practice it because this is what we found in a scrap of paper somewhere or vellum that said this is the way the quote-unquote ancients practiced it or we think that that's how they practice it so this is how we have to do it now you know 1500 years later well there's 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 always a challenge in reconstructionism of on the one hand you know you you get uh, uh, what you hope is a divine inspiration, what you perceive as a message, and then you find that scrap of paper and it confirms it, and that is so exciting. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah, it was true. The thing that popped into my head that seemed really important that I couldn't put a finger on just got confirmed by this scrap of 
paper from 500 years ago or more. Mm -hmm. Right. 1000, whatever. That's exciting. It is. And it's important and it happens. But no tradition is alive if it isn't grounded in the time you're actually living it. And I don't even have a bog handy, much less the right to drown people in it. So there's some things <laughs> that I'm literally just not going to be doing. Right. Um, I'm not a farmer. I, I, am, I am seasonally, I'm a very seasonally grounded person. I have seasonal affective disorder, so that makes it pretty pronounced. And so marking time as it passes is very important to me. And some things are pretty consistent as long as you're between the Arctic Circle and the, the, the tropics in terms mm -hmm. of like anywhere in the temperate zone you're going to have certain uh, a certain range of experience based on the light cycle. Yes. Yeah. Right. The equinoxes are the equinoxes. The solstices are the solstices, whichever hemisphere you're in. True. If you're between the tropics and the Arctic, you're you're in that range. So some markers don't need to change very much unless you really move somewhere very different. But some markers, like, I don't, I don't get snow here in Sunnyvale. Mm -hmm. Not very often, and when I do, it's a tiny patch that makes us all go, oh my god, there's black ice in a parking lot. You know, I mean, like, that does not happen. Right. The water returns in the winter, and the hills are bright green, but all the animals are still going to sleep because it's dark. Mm -hmm. Yes. So some things <clears throat> need to be adjusted, and other things don't need to be adjusted nearly as much as you might expect, and then a lot of things, because we are not farmers, are symbolic. That if you're a farmer, you really should be doing what's actually practical for your for your farm personal. And that's part of my sense of flexibility is like, you know what? When we're doing something that's symbolic, that's reminiscent of something that used to be practical, A, ground it as close as we can into what's truly practical. But B, if you're actually doing the practical thing, the symbolic thing becomes meaningless because the thing you're actually doing is much more real than the symbol could ever be. Very true. Yes, yeah, so there's no point in holding up a map when you're standing in the territory. Yes. <laughs> That's um, true. And so there's a lot of things that are basically me trying to reconnect with the food supply, the environment, the, the cycle of light, the cycle of water. The things that no matter how urban you are, they still affect you. And a lot of people don't realize how much those things affect them. So I think that's actually a very beneficial practice and approach for helping people reconnect to those things and helping well, people that's... find their space. And that is part of it. But part of it is also that I find that the people who are mostly drawn to Vanatru are the ones who are conscious of being affected by it. Not because there's like anything, especially like that's not how to put it. I don't think that's a thing that makes us better than other people, but it is a thing we tend to have in common. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I find that a lot of Vanatrar in particular are people for whom marking time as it is a function of seasonal life is very compelling and in some cases necessary for survival emotionally and possibly physically. Whereas, like, I, I know people who are urban pagans of some other stripe where they're much more grounded in interpersonal cycles, political cycles even. Um, hmm. I have trouble sort of wrapping my brain around what other cycles there are to choose from that aren't nature cycles, but that's just because I'm biased. Um, right. yeah. I mean, I've seen people who are like, you know, I care a lot more about what my computer is doing than what how bright the sky is. And I, a part of me is like, sure, that makes sense, that's your life. And part of me is like, huh? How? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there's some things that are just not my territory. <laughs> yeah, those are great things. Thank you. And mm -hmm. I just think that it's just a really great way to... That's what draws me to it as well as uh, the cycles and having grown up on a farm and then yes. coming out here into uh -huh. urban San Diego on the coast. 
uh, you're right. There are some very constant things, like you said, the light cycles, uh, the return of water, and the going away of water in the summer that we have for so long, and that we can connect to as a common thing, and then how we approach those and work with them. Um, those are what we have the flexibility in us. Pretty much. I mean, um, we get people who come out here from the East Coast where there's a lot more deciduous forest, and the the if they're further north than we are, they also have um, more distinct temperature differences between winter and summer. And they'll come out here and be like, California doesn't have seasons. And I'm like, Guess it yes, does. Yes, we do. <laughs> we absolutely do. But they're not marked the same way. And yeah. that's, that's one of the other reasons for localizing is that, you know, if, if you celebrate all of your holidays based on the memory of where you're not. Right. Then, you know, some of that can be useful for a remembrance. But if all of your holidays are grounded in that, you're dissociating from your environment. Yes, and that's even more pronounced here where we are in San Diego, where we have an even less definition and less deciduousness. Uh, well, yeah, I um, I also, I did move from the East Coast within the last year, and I was worried because I'd been told prior to coming here that there weren't seasons in San Diego, and I have had absolutely no problem picking up on when the seasons are and what they're doing, even though it's my first cycle through them. Um, it's very, uh, there are things that are pretty blatant about the shifts that occur over the course of the year, the shifts in moisture, the shifts in light, the shifts in heat, the shifts in vegetation and uh, wildlife too. Uh, wildlife so. is a key one and watching how the, the animals and plants behave mm -hmm. in response to the environment because the more naturalized they are to the environment, the longer they've evolved in that location, the more sensitive they are to whatever makes that location's seasons distinct. Yes. And um, if, if you've only ever been taught how to mark the seasons by, you know, extremes of temperature, for mm -hmm. example, and you don't pay any attention to light levels or um, you're used to the leaves on the trees turning bright colors and then falling down, but you don't pay any attention to the exact behaviors of evergreens. It may be that the, the seasons are there, but they're subtle in a way that you haven't learned to pay attention to yet. Mm -hmm. And there is tremendous beauty in the really blatant seasons. Like, I went out to the East Coast all of once, but it was in the fall, and oh my god, it was gorgeous. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I can totally see why people coming out here are like, there's no fall here. I'm like, there totally is, but you're looking for something that isn't what marks fall here. That's right. Yeah. Um, there's a definite you know. shift uh, down here where we are. It's like, oops, it's fall time. I'll just know from one day to the next. And Lane, Lane's going to experience that soon, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, my, my anniversary is in an almost exactly a month. Actually, yeah. a little less than a month. So, yeah. full spiral. Yeah. So, tell us about the Vanier. These are things that we've talked about before, we've all talked about before, but uh, for, for the benefit of our viewers, give us your perspective on them. Who are they? What are they? Well, my understanding starts from the Icelandic floor because that's where we have the most material written. Right. And it is easier for me to pull from uh, the, the mythology than it is for me to pull from like uh, archeological records. Mm -hmm. um, although I think that a more complete reconstruction involves a wide variety of sources. So. To that end, my understanding is that the Vanir are centered on Freya, Freyr, and their father Njord, who were brought to Asgard uh, after the end of the Vanir Iser War, which is like the first war ever in the world, according to that particular mythos. Right. Freya is usually summarized as a goddess of love, more broadly, because they're people who have domains, not archetypes. Mm -hmm. Freya's domains include love. 
uh, love, sexuality, beauty, magic, war. Um, she's a chooser of the slain. She has domain over uh, animals, especially female domestic animals that are like livestock. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, two of her names mean one of them is the mayor of the Vanir, so she's understood to be associated with horses. She's also associated with sows, uh, female pigs. Mm -hmm. She's associated with the cats that draw her cart and the falcon birds. The, she has the cloak for flying. She has a powerful uh, a necklace or girdle. That is, it's not uncommon trope actually for goddesses of a particular kind of domain to have a, a necklace of power that is a visual representation in 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 statuary and iconography and whatnot. When you have like, oh, it's that goddess because she has the necklace. Mm -hmm. um, so Freya is one of the few Scandinavian gods that has had continuous practice, but my practice is in no way based on that. My practice is not from a continuous practice. During the Christian era, she was still being honored during Snorri's era, and there's evidence from my understanding, but I, I can't give you citations off the top of my head, that there is at least some degree of folk practice around Freya that has been sustained. It is unclear, to me at least, whether that's been sustained as understanding her as a goddess versus a sort of symbolic folk hero, whether they're mm -hmm. actually trying to address her as an entity or just reference her folk practices can get kind of muddy around that it's true yeah but even in snorri's day it was basically said you know freya is one of the greatest goddesses of that entire extended pantheon because christianity failed to erase her and one of the reasons for that seems really obvious that um there was no substitute for her Absolutely. in Christian lore. Um, Mary was not an adequate replacement. <laughs> yeah. And Mary Magdalene was not yet necessarily being addressed uh, as a particularly sexual person. That particular uh, connection between Mary Magdalene and the prostitute that's referenced in the Gospel that's an error that was made at one point didn't get carried up that far north that early on. Mm -hmm. So... There was nothing in Christianity that, that women could uphold to help them deal with their sexuality, and Scandinavian culture was not as prudish right. as uh, one might have hoped. Um, <laughs> so Freya was still needed, well past the point where most of the other gods were set aside. Her brother Freyr uh, is uh, very much the sacred, sacred king. Um, he's the lord of Alfheim. He's the husband of Gerd, who is the, the Jotunjo who protects walled gardens and therefore uh, domesticated plants. Uh, less farming and more uh, herb garden kind of thing. He's ostensibly the uh, founder of the Swedish line of royalty. He's also the, the namesake as Ingvi for uh, at least two different Germanic tribes mm -hmm. that may or may not come from the same source. We can go back far enough, I don't know. He's uh, usually depicted with a very large penis, so yes. definitely a fertility figure. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's basically the, 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 the peacetime king. Mm -hmm. So the, in the same way that like Odin is, is the king during war, he's the, the, the strategist and the tactician, Freyr is the king of peace and good seasons. Mm -hmm. But he's also the kind of king where if you don't have peace and good seasons anymore, it's time to shed some blood. So, you know, there's that. Njord, their father, is a lord of seafaring. Not so much the ocean itself as an entity, but all of the things that you can get in your life by interacting with it. 
Mm-hmm. We actually just honored him yesterday. So fishing and, you know, trading and plumbing the depths of the ocean, yes, but also Viking. Also, you know, going out and raiding the neighbors by boat. Anything that involves traveling via water is part of his domain. So he's known as being a, a, an excellent provider of wealth to his family. And our experience with him in the Vanna Conspiracy uh, is that he considers Vanaturar family and fully expects to be providing for them so long as they're honoring him. It's just kind of like, duh, of course I provide for my family, and of course you're... So those are the three main Vanir who are clearly and unequivocally referenced repeatedly in the lore. Right. Njorth, I already mentioned Frere's wife, Gur. Njorth also has a Jotun wife, Skavi, that didn't work out quite as well, although they are amicable. Uh, Skavi is a, an ice Jotunya. She's... Uh, uh, the Lady of Thrymheim, she is known for skiing and winter hunting and such. So she's general, those two wives are both generally accepted as having married into the Vanir. Freya married Oder, who may or may not be Odin, and that's its own kettle of fish. But uh, <laughs> that also didn't work out, he disappeared. So Oder definitely is, is Vanir by marriage, but it is unclear whether that means Odin is. Freya has two daughters, Nals and Gersemi. Uh, I believe Snorri says they're by Oder, but the, not everybody believes Snorri. Um, <laughs> both of their names mean treasure. They are perceived as anything from small children to full-grown adults, depending on who you talk to. There's We have like three lines about them, and yeah. they're in disparate places, and they pretty much only ever say, and these are Freya's daughters, or this is Freya's daughter, singular. Her name is... There's references that conflate, like, she has one daughter named either Nos or Gersemi, <laughs> or she has two daughters, or she has the one daughter who has both names, but we generally treat it as two daughters. So they're obviously Vanir, but we know very, very little about them that isn't just modern Gnosis, and that's uh-huh. fine. There's Golveig the Heda, who is definitely known to be a Vanir, may or may not be a guise of Freya, referenced in one line in the Volospo with a line immediately following in most versions that she is a Heda, meaning she's a witch. Yep. Uh, she's dangerous. Yeah. Uh-huh. That doesn't mean she's bad, but, you know, there are some people who say you shouldn't talk to her. Those people are usually not a Vanitrar. She's the one that the Aesir got spooked and tried stabbing her and burning her to death and then she came back to life so they did it again so she came back to life again so they did it yet again and she came back to life yet again i'm sensing a trend here yes right. yes, yes and this either started or ended the war depending on your interpretation so she's very much a goddess of magic obviously uh-huh. but she's kind of also in our experience a goddess of ptsd because, dude, they stabbed and burned her to death three times. So she's definitely on the list. Um, beyond that, it's guesswork. So let's see. Frere has servants. Skirnir, uh, Bigvir, Bela, they are not said to be Vanek directly, but of course, as servants of Frere, they're included in the family in the general sense. Nerthus is generally well accepted to be the otherwise unnamed twin sister of North, who is Freya and Freya's mother. Mm-hmm. And the basis for that argument was made by uh, Hilda Ellis Davidson. She uh, basically points out that the name Nerthus is cognate to Njorth, and the practices that we have, uh, that Tacitus cited around Nerthus are cognate to Freya. So even though it is extremely unlikely that Njorth's sister was called Nerthus in the same culture that calls Nord Njorth. Right. That's all we have left of their respective names. Mm-hmm. So those are the two names for them we use. Okay. And Nerthus is one of those 
there's this whole collection of mainland Germanic local earth goddesses that any two neighbors share very common traits, but if you go from one end to the other, you get some pretty significant differences. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, that gets complicated. Beyond that, you're really delving into UPG or much, much older history. You're, you're leaving the Viking era by quite a bit and, mm -hmm. and digging much, much further back. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people, um, myself included, but that's not the center of my practice, who believe that the Vanir are actually quite primal mm -hmm. and um, go back really far. And if we really want to figure out who we are, we have to be willing to uh, dig back to some pre-Indo-European stuff. I have found repeatedly that people who are drawn to the Vanir are almost always also drawn to Celtic powers. Mm -hmm. And many of us have found that the Vanir and the Celtic powers refer to each other as siblings or cousins. Most of us who are under the Vanir also honor the Aesir, mm -hmm. but not as family, except to the degree that they married in, we're honoring them as allies. And so, you know, from there, it's, it's something of a mess. Vanatru can include honoring a huge variety of powers depending on how you interpret Vanir. But the center is unequivocal. It's how far out you go from there that becomes complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make I mean, sense? Yeah, it yeah. does. Very, very much so. Um, I want to throw in my. I work with a, actually a fairly wide variety of pantheons, mm -hmm. um, but I don't necessarily practice with them all in the context of Vanatru because I have been trained in other traditions, some of which I still actively practice. And I try to respect the boundaries of each tradition I've been trained to practice. And I don't mix and match unless either the gods or the humans I'm dealing with specifically say, hey, we want you to mix and match this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and e even then, that's not my default. My go-to is to try and keep things one-on-one -on -one and within the boundaries that I've been taught, just out of respect, um, both for the cultures of the humans involved and for the potential wishes of the gods involved. <sighs> wow, I had all these questions written down, well, and you I mean, seem to have answered so many of them right away, so I'm just kind of well, going I'll through your amazing... I'll a couple of tough ones, or maybe not even tough for you, but things that occurred to me that, that uh, uh, have to do with the Vanir and, and their, their practice. You mentioned other Vanir besides um, Frey, Freya, and, uh, and Njord. There's like, for instance, the line in uh, Thrymskvida that says something to the effect of Heimdall was skilled in foresight like the other Vanir. Right, and there's a couple different ways to translate that one. You could say it as a comparison with the Vanir, or you could say it's pointing out that he is one of the Vanir. Right, and yeah, that, I've seen it both that ways. That one gets taken both ways. Mm -hmm. um, my personal UPG is that he is uh, born to the Vanir and uh, fostered to Odin long enough ago that his emotional uh, connection and political allegiance is much more strongly to Odin than the Vanir. Oh. Um, oh, that he hasn't yeah. lived in Vanaheim in a very long time, but that doesn't mean the Vanir have forgotten him as kin. Right. Um, and he obviously really... is very fond of Freya, for example. Uh -huh. Yes. But um, he is long since naturalized to the Aesir. Okay. Um, and that's my personal take on it from, from a certain amount of years of practice. We have been known to honor him in the Van Conspiracy. There are some folks who are like, he's a welcome guest, but he's not really one of them. And there's others who are like, he's totally one of them. And... You know, their reasoning is as varied as it is personal. And the habit in the Vanek Conspiracy is to say that the answers here are unclear and we expect that you will come to your own conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that it's pretty clear, regardless, that Heimdall is welcome among the Vanir. 
and for our purposes, for any given evening, if we're honoring him, that is sufficient. Another thing that I could throw out there, and if you feel comfortable answering it or, or throwing that, <laughs> um, or dealing with this, uh, obviously you probably don't agree with the, the Simek, uh, paper on, you know, the death of the Vanir. Do you have like a standard <laughs> response that you give to that? Um, or anything uh, that you throw out? To be honest, the whole thing is so ridiculous. I just don't even bother. I mean, I'm with um, you there. Clearly but... the men here are not dead. I think that was a very interesting <laughs> academic on, argument on his part, but I don't think that, um, I don't think his reasoning has any bearing on my practice. Fair. So I, I don't spend a lot of time trying to defend myself against it. Yeah, I, I wasn't asking you to defend yourself. I was just asking if you oh, had no, a I, uh, I reaction or anything. Hmm? It's one of those things that I've heard other Vanatura bring up as a point of concern, but no one has ever actually brought it to me as an actual argument. Right. So I'm like, I believe you that someone made that argument. Shrug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I've honestly, even in other contexts, I've heard people bring up the argument, but nobody actually supporting it. People just kind of tossing it around and discussing it and going, ah, um, and moving on. But... You know, you you uh you run a Vanic group and are creating a Vanic tradition, so definitely one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, would you be interested in talking about your group and how your group works or how it formed? Well, let's see. The Vanic Conspiracy meets once a month for uh, ritual discussion and or social gathering, depending on what we're doing that month, and once a season for uh, trance devotional. We're currently in the process of doing some sort of back to basics work because we had a, a significant influx of new members after uh -huh. Kathy upon this last year uh -huh. and you know we're so we're sort of going through and, and reintroducing the core gods to our newer members uh -huh. which is why we were just honoring Njord last night we made uh, uh, everybody got together and we made jewelry for people to wear to keep Njord close to them so that he can take good care of them oh how fun God. And like the, the, the month before that, we did uh, a myth exploration on one of the stories of uh, Freya, actually two of them, the, the story of Brzingaman, and then um, a, a later snippet of Brzingaman being, I think there was a snippet about Brzingaman being stolen. There was also a bit about um, the story, <laughs> the story where uh, Thor has to dress up as Freya to get Mjolnir back and has to borrow Brzingaman to pull it off because otherwise Freya has to marry this Jotun that she has no interest in marrying. And uh, the reactions that Freya and Brzingaman both had to the situation as well as Freya, uh, Thor. So that was a lot of fun. Myth reenactments are intellectual exercises. Mm -hmm. They're creative role-playing our way through the narrative of a, of a known myth. Um, I did not invent that. One of our uh, one of our members, Kara, brought it back from Pantheacon one year and showed it to us, and we were like, "This is fantastic." Um, we also do what you might call high woo. We do some pretty intense trance work uh -huh. sometimes. One of the ways I have for introducing people to the gods is called an intensive that was developed uh, actually in Raven Caldera's prompting when he asked me oh. to come out to uh, Nine Worlds Festival that he was holding and wanted me to run a Vanic intensive, and I got uh, my friend. Uh, river to come help me with that uh -huh. <laughs> um, forever ago now but that that prompted me to develop a form called an intensive uh, where we set up a formal ritual space introduce the deity talk about the deity toast uh, feign bloat however you want to call it the deity uh -huh. and then I do some guided meditation not guided journey guided meditation Nar uh, narrating one of the myths about that power putting the audience in the perspective of 
someone adjacent to the power in the story. Um, so, like, one of the dwarves who slept with Freya uh-huh. for the necklace, or um, the servant taking care of Nerthus's statue, hmm. who gets drowned. Yeah. Um, so, like, someone close to the god for the sake of the narrative, and then going through the experience of being in the same place with the god and giving them an opportunity to even maybe talk to the god if they can. Nice. Um, we also do journey work sometimes, guided journey uh, somewhere in the Nine Worlds. I have a pretty solid map in my head for how to navigate the spaces and do my best to keep people, you know, in the cart with their hands and arms. Seatbelts <laughs> um, on. But you kind of have to be careful with that kind of thing, because once you're actually taking people out of themselves, things can get lost. True. So um, that's, you know, something that I try to only do if we actually have uh, someone who can help themselves put them back together afterwards if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Which I do have training in, so, you know, it's fine. It's fine when I do it. Um, <laughs> but it's not necessarily something I would suggest throwing someone else into the deep end of without someone there. So, yeah, and then sometimes we just have socials because we don't have the energy for anything more, but we want to get together and hang out. Right, um, yeah. You know, it's, it's anything from a social-like conversation to, you know, an, an intellectual exercise and a learning experience to uh, light ritual to some really intense, deep, personal, potentially very affecting ritual. And what we're doing depends on what time of year we're in, what needs doing. There is a liturgical calendar of specific holidays to celebrate, but that only takes up about half of our meetings, um, and the other half are open. And then the seasonal, the quarterly trance devotionals are opportunities for people to commune directly with the gods um, as much as we can help them do so. Uh, people who are being trained as trans mediums have opportunities to practice opening themselves to the gods. Um, and we find that most of the time the gods are interested in joining us, but you know, there's exceptions. It happens. This group exists because the gods want it to, and at the same time, not everyone needs to be a trans medium every time they think of it. So, you know, we, we try to create an, a, a safer space that is open for that, but there's never any guarantees. That sounds like a really nice variety of ways for folks to get together and actually form a family. Well, like I'm a... easily bored, so variety is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like me as being an Aquarian, I'm kind of all over the place. Oh, my moon's in Aquarius for what it's worth. Many different things are, are very good for me, too. So if someone wanted to find resources on, on your practice, is there anywhere that you share them where, where you might share how somebody could could Redwood Vanatru if they wanted to? Yes and no. I'm trying to build that up, but I Uh haven't necessarily gotten very far yet. My blog is embervoices.wordpress.com, and to the degree that I talk about my practice, that's pretty much where it's accessible publicly right now. Right. Um, And I'm trying to get better about getting more of it out there. I'm also really good at answering questions. I'm not so good at figuring out what to say until somebody tells me what they need from me, but I'm really good at answering questions. So anyone is welcome to go to my blog and say, hey, I have a question how do you do blah? And I will totally respond and I might turn it into a separate blog post if it's good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have an outreach email for people who need personal help, but that's not really about Redwood Vonatrue. That's just about my clergy work. Right. Um, obviously, there's overlap in context, but um, it's not a one-to-one correlation. Amber, are you hoping to, with some of these trained folks, to be some sort of a clergy or like a Gothi or Gidea type uh, situation in different areas? <laughs> Let me try and unpack that. Are you asking me if I'm trying to train other people to be clergy? If that would be an option at some point, let's let's say it that way. I know that that's not your focus is to say, yeah, I'm out training clergy, but... So, okay, 
I want to I want to make a couple things clear here since you did ask. Um, there are three different levels of formalization of of right of found and true in terms of a person who identifies that they want to like make a commitment. The mm-hmm. first is devotion, which is if they want to say I am connected to this particular deity in a very personal and deep way that I want to make a commitment to. And yeah. um, anyone who believes they are ready for that can talk to me about doing that and, and we'll see what we can put together for them. And I do have a pattern for that, but not a lot of people have taken it up yet. So it's not a, it's set in jello. The second <laughs> level is we have been working on a set of, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, initiatory mysteries that really have to be administered in person. But I'm hoping that once we've gotten further along in that process, there will be people who want to have the ability to travel, who want to come and take them, and then take them back with them. Right. And then the third level is ordination, but um, I am, Redwood Vanitru is not like a 501c3 mm-hmm. religious organization, so in California, ordination on an on a, uh, undocumented basis is sufficient, but I can't promise it would be enough in other states. Understood, yeah. Um, and I am inclined to call all three of those potentially clergy levels, but only the third level is ministry. Right. Okay. And I want to distinguish between people who are trained to serve the gods and people who are trained to serve the community. Uh-huh. Because they require different skills. And yes. not everyone is, who is called to do one is called to do the other. So um, I don't want to call people ordained who are not actually prepared to do at least some kind of ministry. Uh, for for actual people like hospice or, or or chaplaincy or something, but I suspect the vast majority of people actually don't need to be ordained at that level. Don't don't feel called to do that level of work because frankly it's a lot of work. And, and there are some re- requirements and laws depending on what state you're in for those types well, exactly. of and that level. Exactly, I can't um, I can't promise that we can provide certification on a legal level. That's right. a whole other kettle of fish. Yes. Um, because I have so neurons on the brain, I keep all my metaphors are fish oriented. Not a god fish, yeah. <laughs> I am still working on what the requirements are for someone to be ordained. Um, I have some ideas, but I also have an idea that I don't want to stop people from ordaining just because they're not perfect. That's silly. Nobody's ever perfect. So I'm trying to figure out where to draw the lines for the third level. The second level mostly just requires people who are ready for it that we can arrange the time and place to do it. Uh-huh. The Excellent. first level is personal work. And then a public declaration with a certain amount of ritual, and that we're pretty much already ready for. I've got a couple people are setting up to do it, and they're in their year of building that devotion and, and figuring out what it needs to be so that we can actually have their public declarations next summer. Awesome. And so that's all with the local concept, and my thought is there's no reason why someone from somewhere else can't come and join us and do this thing or take the model for the first level and possibly the third level and implement it on their own. But this, the, the mystery level is hard to implement long distance. So um, I'm hoping that that can spread via contact. But mm-hmm. I have no problems with traveling to, you know, people traveling to us or if I can afford to and have the time, me traveling to them so that we can make it not just local. Thanks. That does really, that does. And that really, really moved beyond what my initial question was, which was about clergy, which you answered the question even better than I asked it. So thank you. <laughs> well, I, um, part of the answer may be, I took public ordination oaths to the Vanier 
and the community to be a, a, a Vanek Gidia serving the gods and the people uh -huh. uh, several years ago um, at, at Greyhaven, actually, um, and, and you know, took oaths to each of the four main Vanir and, and the folk, and then the folk accepted my oath back, and those are documented as the very first entry on my blog that I already gave you the URL for, in case people are curious, but the whole ritual is not posted, just the vows. Okay. And that is the same ritual that I would use to ordain. Uh, they have sufficient training and are, are up for the work, so. Great. The vows can be adjusted for the individual to some degree, but the, the basic thing is, is already there, does already exist. It just hasn't been implemented on anyone else yet because that has yet to happen. Tell us about the Vanatru boar symbol. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a convention and I was looking at old ancient coins that uh, numismatist had a booth there, and he's absolutely fascinating to talk about the history of any of these coins. And there were this, I asked him, basically, do you have any heathen coins? Do you have any coins from people who worshipped the Norse gods? And he said, I do, actually, and showed me wow. uh, these pictures of these coins from the Danelaw era, of pagan Danes, who learned a certain style of art being influenced by their Celtic neighbors and a certain technology from their Roman neighbors. Mm -hmm. And they combined that with their own sacred symbols and, and, and meanings into this very, very stylized image of a, a boar. And um, sometimes it can be mistaken for a porcupine. <laughs> yeah, it does look like one. Um, by people who are taking them out of context, but he was showing me the progression of the imagery from mm -hmm. things that were more obviously boars to things that were significantly less obviously boars. And how the sort of sum of the image, like there's a bunch of tiny little coins with the line work on them. Um, I ordered some replicas of those coins the design that is on my website that I was trying to promote, and I still would like to promote because we don't have a single symbol for the Vanir as a pantheon, as a group, as a family or a tribe. We have symbols suitable for the individual Vanir. Yeah. But there's no symbol for all the Vanir collectively. But boars come up repeatedly as sacred to the Vanir in general. Right. And then we have this historical pagan era image that's very simple. Anyone can draw it uh -huh. of a boar from pagans who worshipped those gods, amongst others. And I'm like, you know, that's actually kind of perfect for my purposes here. Um, I felt like, you know, I like just about fell all over myself. I want to say, the convention this happened at is the same convention many, many years later that I originally got the necklace that I that I call my Brzingaman. That's my, my clergy necklace, especially yeah. for, for Freya work. That's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so one way or another, the gods really like when I go to this convention. Sounds like <laughs> I don't it. know why, but they really love bonking me upside the head with things from the dealer's room in this convention. Like this, you need to see this. Like, okay, I gotcha, I heard you. I took the, the various instances of that design and came up with uh, a sort of uh, platonic ideal of, of the boar design that I feel is simple enough that anyone can draw it and consistent enough that it should be clear what it is so that it's got nine bristles and four legs every time instead mm -hmm. of a variable number of legs and bristles as it is on the many different coin designs. There's been some argument from people that because it's Roman technology or a Celtic aesthetic that it's not really Norse pagan and it's like, okay, A, Vikings. <laughs> right. Not known for staying home, very much known for stealing other people's stuff. 
Yes. B, do you honestly think that every culture that has swords independently invented them? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm pretty sure technology spreads from neighbors to neighbors via trade, and I know that our ancestors were traders. So, I mean, if you want to get into it, yes, there's influences from other neighboring cultures, but the people who actually created that design created that design with their sacred concepts in mind, and their sacred concepts are centered on our gods. So I think it's totally fair to use it. And my intent is that that line drawing, anyone can draw it, anyone can redraw it, have at. I can draw it. Use it to represent Vanishru and the the Vanir. I can draw it, Ember, thank you. That that means it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, like, think about the other symbols for other religions, right? I mean, who can't draw two lines? Right. Or... Or two curved lines, right? A fish and a cross are right. the essential symbols of Christianity. Anyone can draw them. Mm-hmm. The, the the Star of David and the High, anyone can draw those. I mean, the, the basic symbols that represent almost every major religion in the world are things anyone can sit down and draw. Yeah. And there's elaborate versions of them. There's absolutely gorgeous work. A Celtic cross could have layers and layers of knotwork and anthropomorphic things mixed in the middle. And But the basic symbol, anyone can draw. And that's what I was aiming for, was something anyone can draw, but that could be elaborated on into something absolutely detailed and gorgeous and intricate at the other end by someone feeling artistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what neither you nor our listeners could see when you first mentioned about your detractors saying, oh, that was a Roman technology, is both Lane and I's eyes hitting the back of our heads in a (laughs) row at the same time. And some of it was just folks who actually have a, a, a Germanic Roman practice going, hey, that's more ours than yours. I'm like, well, there are any number of other coins made by the same power, by, by the same people in the same era. So it's not like we're running short on symbols to pull from. That's right. Well, yeah, I think we're all on I, the I, same I, page on I this. I appreciate yeah. this particular symbol being focused on the Vanir and Vanitru because we need one and yes. because it wasn't already being used. Right. We're making it happen on our end. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. I appreciate it spreading. I would like it to spread. I love that symbol. I've drawn it on all kinds of things. I have it uh, painted on my horn right now, for instance, you know. And I do. I like the simplicity. I like the symbolism of having the nine bristles and four legs. Works really well with... Well, it works really well. I will say one thing. I was not intending for that to be the symbol for Redwood Vanishru. Intending for that to be the symbol for all Vanishru. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Redwood Vanishru can have, you know, subset symbols that are specific to that particular branch. And the Vanit Conspiracy already does have our own bind room that is just for that one group. So, you know, I hope that Vanishru are on other paths, like the Boar symbol too, because um, um, that one was not meant to be specific to my work. Or, or people interested in my work. It's meant to be for everybody. I like it, and I like the uh, story about it on your website, which you, t- you go into depth about the how it came about, and you have a couple of different uh, examples on there that folks can take a look at as well. So it's getting adopted, and I think it's great. I still, <laughs> The funny thing is I actually know several people who have those brass ones that that one artist made when she right. was on the post. I'm so, so excited she did that. I have one. I still don't own one. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. I actually don't have... Um, although I think, Jan, I think you made one for me out of Fimo. Uh, um, I still don't have any, uh, any of the, the brass uh, boar things yet. So I think that's funny for some reason. Yeah, one would think that you would have one for sure. Someday, no doubt. That's I will, right. I will eventually 
get around to, to setting aside money for that in particular. There's just so many things. I, I don't actually have a lot of money. I have negligible income of my own. If I did not have a wonderfully supportive partner, I would be completely screwed. But he makes sure I at least am, am you know, able to get where I need to go and have food every day and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, he, he takes care of me in that sense. And then I, I try to stay on top of anything extra with, within my own resources. Uh, before we get ready to wrap up, what's coming up? Will you be at PantheaCon in February? I know it seems early to talk about it, but it will be upon us before we know it. And any plans uh, yeah. for Vanek workshops or things that you're submitting and hoping that uh, will be accepted? Well, I need to get back on the horse and, and put my submissions in, but uh, the answer to that is yes, uh, I will definitely be at PantheaCon. The question is how many rituals am I helping run? <laughs> um, and I want to submit, and I, I need to get, uh, I need to, to get that done, to submit a, um, a devotional for Freya and Freya that will hopefully involve God. a lot of music and will probably involve raising Freya from the mound. Oh, wow. excellent. Nice. Since that's the time of year for it. We, uh, we send Freya into the mound at the end of October, early November, and we, uh, we pull him out of the mound in February. And Pantheacon is just about exactly the perfect time for it, so uh -huh. I figure people have been asking me for a while to do a music-based transdevotional for the Vanier at Pantheacon, and um, I'm hoping I can basically get enough people together that we actually have the resources we need to make that happen this year. Assuming, of course, that programming has a space for it in this year's schedule, which is never guaranteed, but, um, you know, decent chances. <laughs> yeah. I also help with, um, and I know this is not about the Vanier, I also help run uh, Lon, my, my boyfriend, Lon Sarver's Theosis Bacchios, which is a Dionysian group. And the last couple of years we've run um, Dionysias at Pantheacon, and I believe we are interested in doing so again this year if they are interested in having us back, and we're always improving on that ritual as well. And I do not know whether or not Freya's at which is the, the group of Freya's people that Kara pulls, uh, Kara Freya's daughter pulls together. I do not know yet whether or not there will be something by the that group that I have been involved in in the past, which did Facets of Freya the last couple of years. And I also don't know if I have the energy to be involved in it, if there is. Uh, I certainly didn't feel like it last year, but um, mm -hmm. uh, we did get it all done and it went pretty well, so there's always the question of whether or not that's happening too. I will at least attend. Yeah. <laughs> so you've probably seen me there. Whether I am actually helping run the thing or not remains to be seen if, if there is such a thing. As I understand, you got some more Vanek conspiracy people out of that ritual, so that's a good thing. I, uh, out of, out of both of the, the rituals yeah. we oh, did this that's year. that's true. And, mm -hmm. and Theosis. Uh, the interesting thing was I was actually um, wondering if people were going to, because Freya's at started doing Facets of Freya the year before the Vanek Conspiracy finally started doing public work. And I had been wondering whether that meant that people would be going and asking Kara about uh, what the Vanek Conspiracy was doing. She would know, because she's one of our founding members, but um, she was not directly responsible for it. And I was wondering if people were going to assume that the Vanek Conspiracy stuff was Freya's at stuff. Uh, and I uh -huh. found that actually what happened was it was the other way around. People thought that Freya's at stuff was the Vanek Conspiracy stuff. And there's sufficient overlap in membership, in, in foundation, and in method, because, well, again, Kara and I have been working together on and off for a very long time, um, and I would, she and I were both involved in all of those things, that um, 
it is understandable they would be conflated, but I was amused to see them conflated in the opposite direction that I was expecting to see. <laughs> yeah. Even to the point where a lot of people who visited both rituals couldn't remember which one was which when they were trying to ask me about it. And they're like, this thing happened. Wait, no, I don't remember which one it was in. <laughs> like, I can't help you. <laughs> you need to tell me what you're talking about first. So, um, we're drawing to a close soon. Uh, one of the things we usually do is pull out a rune and, and discuss it and talk about it because everyone loves runes, um, ourselves included. <laughs> Would you be interested in providing insight if I pull one out? Uh, I'll try. Okay. I do know the runes. Looks like we have Burkano. Oh, Burkano? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the birch tree, um, mostly associated with Frigga, but also sometimes associated with Freya. Definitely, definitely associated with the Deezier, with uh, female power, um, and with the way in which uh, traditionally community was built from woman to woman because the men were more likely to be traveling. Right. Um, and the women were in charge of the household. Um, and a significant quantity of the caretaking. So, Burkana looks like the letter B, or, mm -hmm. you know, a pair of breasts. Right. Um, and birch trees are strongly associated with Frigga. I actually have two in my yard, um, which is one of the ways that we knew that this was the house to move into. And one of the things that I always remember when I think about Burkana, which admittedly is probably a, a little bit of ways from the original Norse poems on the topic, is that birch trees talk to each other via their roots, as many types of trees do. Mm-hmm. And that that's part of this sort of social networking that takes place from household to household. I like that imagery. So, so Burkana, to me, represents, aside from representing uh, feminine power and caretaking uh, responsibilities in a, in a somewhat traditional role, it also represents the way uh, humans as social animals take care of each other by communicating on a unofficial basis. Uh, an unofficial and frankly sometimes hidden basis. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the reminder that gossip is not a weapon, it's a tool. It's true. Although any tool can be a weapon if you use it a, a certain way. But uh, well, Granted, but the point is that a weapon is a tool that is designed primarily ah, to good be point. for harm, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, okay, any tool, the morality of its use, the morality of the object is the morality of the use of the object. You right. can stab someone in the eye with a screwdriver, or you could use it to actually take something apart or put something together. A weapon is a tool specifically designed primarily to cause harm, but causing harm can be in self-defense, so that's still not morality. Very true. Well said, um, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, part of the point is that gossip is not even specifically a weapon. It is uh -huh. a general tool. Yeah. Communication is essential for cohesion, but gossip is also necessary for people keeping track of what's going on around them, mapping the minefield, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is impossible to escape that kind of social interaction as social animals. If you are part of a community, it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Well, thanks for those insights. Those are really nice. Mm -hmm. I, I love the birch. The further explanation of the birch, the communication through the roots, I hadn't pulled that together with that before, so that was awesome. That was excellent. Yeah, growing up on the East Coast, um, bir the birches that grew near me, I think they were silver birches, they, they were pretty much my favorite tree next to the maples, and I was very, I knew there would be no maples when I moved down here, but I was very concerned about there being no birches, and I've discovered birches, so I feel a lot better about being here now. Um, <laughs> well, there's plenty of maples up here. Oh, good to know. I mean, you know, there's a lot more oaks, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. 
We have a lot of Maple oaks here, too. Maple here. Excellent. <laughs> well, Ember, thank you so much yeah, for joining you. us. You really helped us uh, understand a lot about Vanatru and our listeners to understand it as well. And we just really appreciate that you took your time out of your busy schedule to uh, share with us and to share about the veneer. Yeah. Thank you, Ember. Well, Lane, really excited to have Ember join us and uh, tell us about Vanatru and the Vanat Conspiracy, the local group there in the Redwood tradition. That was really great. And she provided us with so much to, to share and think about. Yeah, I've heard a lot of uh, misconceptions about Vanatru being uh, tossed around online. So it's good to have a... Um, a strong and, well, experienced voice um, to speak about it. And a well-spoken voice. She yes, really absolutely. covered stuff very well. It was very exciting. It kind of made our work easy for us tonight. It really did. <laughs> so, Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We Thank really you, appreciate nice. you coming uh, to download us, and uh, we look forward to coming back next month we're not sure what we'll be talking about but it will be if you have any ideas feel free to email us at gifts of the weird at gmail.com i'll also have a twitter account at weird gifts if you're getting us through itunes leave a review because that helps it kind of bubble up to the surface so folks looking for a heathen oriented podcast can find us easier through the itunes search engine and uh, we still have some CDs. I have a lot of CDs that Hawk made. So uh, we will just continue that uh, special, four CDs for $25, including domestic shipping. If you're outside of the country, we ask that you pay actual shipping costs, which generally isn't too much. Go out and serve the gods, connect with the gods, get to know the gods and the goddesses, and get to know the land around you and take care of your kin. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.